copy of God's Word with me, and let's open to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, as we continue working our way through this gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our passage this morning is Luke 20, verses 9 through 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. And, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Let's pray together. Father God, we gather here joyously as those who profess you, as those who are looking to faith, in faith to Christ, our Savior and Lord, as those who are trusting in your life, your death, your resurrection, Lord, to be ours. And so, Lord, our prayer is that your Spirit would illumine our minds and our hearts now, that you would Make these words alive to us, Father God, for you tell us that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. May you wield this sword in our hearts, Lord, cutting away our remaining sin, cutting away, Lord, whatever is not of Christ, and bringing us more and more into conformity to him. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that you have given us. For the knowledge that a day is coming. Lord, when every wrong will be righted. Every wickedness will be answered. And we, your children, will be brought into your presence forevermore. Speed that day, O oh God. And yet even as we pray for that day to come, we likewise pray, salvation, Lord, that you would save those that we know in our midst, those whom we have been sharing with, those whom we have been praying for, bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. Spare them from the judgment to come, O God. In your name we pray this. Amen. Are you a patient person? You know, my wife would probably disagree with me at this, but when I was a younger man, I, I truly believed I was a reasonably patient person. I had moments, 
You know, I, I, I especially, you know, didn't like to be late to anything, even going to Walmart when the time came. But it was when I had children that I really began to realize I had to come face to face with the fact that I was not the patient man that I thought I was. And, and all of us who have children just know how quickly that is revealed. And yet God, by His grace, has helped me to cope with my own sin of impatience and re repent of it in many respects and is even now continuing to, to work in my heart to make me a, a more patient man. But even as I've seen that growth in my own heart, it has made me step back and wonder at God even more. Because, you know, our Father in Heaven is never impatient. He is always long-suffering. There are things that I know that I do as a child of God that if I were the father of me, it would get on my last nerve. And yet God is loving. Even in His correction with His Word and His Spirit, He is, he is always timely, always patient, always long-suffering, convicting, walking alongside, filling, developing, and we see that ultimately and fully in Jesus Christ. You know, we're picking, off, we're picking up where we left off last time. At the beginning of Passion Week, we saw last week that a, a group of chief priests and elders came up to Jesus as he was teaching in the temple. And they demanded to know the source and the nature of his authority. They would not answer his question, however, about the source of John the Baptist's ministry. And so he did not answer their question about his authority. But after his reply, he began this parable, which is clearly directed at the Jewish leaders. And what we see here through Christ's teaching is that those who claimed to be the most devout Jews were really the ones who were farthest from the kingdom of God. And remember that all of this is setting the stage for Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion, which is going to be the final, ultimate rejection of God on the part of the Israelites. And it's going to culminate a very long history of hard-heartedness on the part of the Jews. It is that very truth that we see reflected in this parable. And so we're going to look at this in really just two parts. Let us consider first the patience of the Father. The patience of the Father. As we pick up with this parable, we see Jesus once again employing a metaphor that would have been very common in this agrarian society. The idea of a vineyard owner and tenant farmers. In the New Testament times, the, the, the many hillsides of Palestine contain numerous vineyards. Well, so Jesus tells a story. This particular owner of a vineyard, after putting in place everything that was needed for the safe and successful production of wine, he rented it out to tenants, and he went on a long journey. And as was the common practice when the time of the harvest came, the landowner sent his servants to the vine growers, to the tenants, to receive his share of the fruit of the vineyard. And these vineyard tenants, they could have given the, the servants of the landowner, they could have given them bushels of grapes or the wine itself, or they could have given them the money that resulted from the sale of the wine and the grapes. But as it turns out, they did not give the slaves of the landowner anything. Instead, in verse 10, first of all, they beat the first one. Now, this word for beat in the original language is a severe beating. It's actually the word that's used to that means to flay or to scourge or to thrash. It means they beat him raw and bloody. 
and they sent him away empty-handed. Verse 11, the landowner sent a second servant, and it says they beat. Again, they beat this man raw and bloody, and they also treated him shamefully. They despised him and insulted him and treated him with contempt. In Old Testament times, when you really wanted to to send someone away shamefully, you would hold them down and, and shave their hair and their beard from them. It's that kind of idea here. They did that to the second servant and also sent him away empty-handed. Verse 12, they wounded, they struck with a severe blow. And sometimes this word can mean with a mortal blow. They struck the third servant and cast him out. They drove him out, also sending him away empty-handed. Now, if we just pause right there, what is absolutely startling at this point is the excessive violence that's employed by the tenant farmers. You know, when the servants came, they could have simply refused, saying, we're not giving you anything. Go away. They could have given far less than the landowner's proper share. They could have lied about it and said, well, you know, the vineyard didn't do so well this year. They could have merely just despised the men and mocked them a little bit and sent them home with their proverbial tails between their legs. But no, these tenants were shockingly vicious and violent towards the landowner's men. And what is even more interesting here is the landowner's response. You see, the normal response to this kind of treatment would have been very strong and very swift. The landowner, after the first servant was flayed, was scourged, was beaten, the landowner would have gone to the authorities and he himself would have shown up accompanied by soldiers to remove the rebel farmers or... The landowner would have raised a small militia from among his own family members and servants and other tenant farmers to go and beat the snot out of those wicked tenants. So the question we might ask is, why didn't the vineyard owner do this? Why didn't he respond in force right after the first servant was beat up and rejected? Was he weak? Did he just not have good sense? Well, A man without sense wouldn't have been wealthy enough or experienced enough to get into this business and build a vineyard in the first place. A weak man wouldn't have sent a second and a third servant for fear that he would lose more men and further provoke these wicked farmers. So the only explanation is that this landowner was being long-suffering. He cared for the tenant farmers And he was patiently trying to win back their obedience. And so what does he do? Once more, hoping to get through to the farmers, look at verse 13. The landowner says, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. The parallel passage in Mark 12, 6 tells us that this was the landowner's only son. He sent his beloved son, hoping that the farmers would respect him as the landowner's direct representative and heir to the property. And the word respect there is important. It translates a a very interesting word that literally means to turn about and to put to shame. The idea is that of turning from your shame to a high regard or reverence. The landowner's hope in sending his son is that the farmers would receive his son out of respect for him and turn from their wickedness to honor him once more. Well, we see in verses 14 and 15 that the opposite was the case. When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And that's exactly what they did. They threw him out of the vineyard, they removed him from land that was his own, 
and they murdered him outright. These tenant farmers did not see that the landowner's son coming to them was an act of mercy and patience to them. Instead, they were overcome with greed. They saw it as an opportunity to secure their hold on the land and all of its profits. And so they murdered him. You know, this was an utterly appalling turn of events. The incredible patience and grace of the landowner was met with incredible wickedness and violence by the tenants to the extent that these farmers viciously killed the only son of their master. Now once again, if we had been among that crowd in the first century, on that day as Jesus told this story, we probably would have heard an audible gasp at this point. How horrifying that people could do such a thing. And that would be followed by the question, now what will the landowner do? Now the second question is answered in the next part of the text. I'll get there in a moment. But I just want us to pause here to consider what we see in the parable so far. It's pretty obvious to all all of us here what the parts of the story represent. The vineyard owner is God, who created all things and who gave his image bearers dominion over all of the earth. The tenant farmers are Israel, God's chosen people. They were entrusted with what belonged to God, but they did not give glory to God and worship him as they were supposed to. The servants that were sent by the landowner represents God's messengers, God's prophets that he sent to his people numerous times during their history to warn them and to win them back. But rather than repenting, his people responded with great wickedness and violence. And again, Israel's history bears this out. We know from Justin Martyr's dialogues with Trypho that they took the prophet Isaiah and they literally took a wood saw that was used for sawing down trees and they sawed the prophet Isaiah in half. This is likely what Hebrews 11.37 is referring to when it talks about men of faith being sawn in two. They took Jeremiah and threw him into a pit and tradition says that he was ultimately stoned. They rejected Ezekiel. Amos had to run for his life. Zechariah was also rejected and stoned. And Micah was smashed in the face by people who did not want to hear his message. After each of those prophets was treated so contemptuously, did God destroy Israel? No. He was patient and long-suffering with them. We see in in the Lord what is told in Psalm 78, verse 38. But he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse all his wrath. Psalm 86, 15. But thou, O Lord, art a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Brothers and sisters, God is so patient that even after his own people rejected his previous messengers, he sent his son. Obviously, that's who the son of the landowner is in the parable. With this part of the parable, then, Jesus is being prophetic. You know, think about it. Jesus is there in the temple courts speaking this parable to a Jewish audience that contains the Jewish Sanhedrin, the leaders, the religious leaders of the people. The Jews were going to kill him, and they were going to kill him that very week. Jesus knew it. He knew their hearts. He knew that they were actively plotting his murder. He knew that they were going to have one of his disciples betray him and take his life. And yet he remained among them 
loving them with the truth, warning them with His words right up to the time of His arrest. When you get right down to it, brothers and sisters, in Jesus is where we see all the beautiful patience of the Godhead for us as His people. You know, just think about the life of Jesus Think of how patient he was with his family. We, we don't have much at all in the Gospels by, by way of telling us about the life of, of young Jesus, but we do have that one episode where his family went up to Jerusalem for one of the religious observances. It was a great caravan. His parents accidentally left him behind, and Jesus was, was in the temple. And, and Mary and Joseph, after they had already been gone for a while, they realized Jesus wasn't in the caravan. He wasn't among the relatives, and they went back, and there was a frantic search. And then they finally found Jesus in the temple. And when they found Jesus in the temple, this is for you young people, listen to me. When they found Jesus in the temple and told him that they'd been searching for him, Jesus didn't roll his eyes and go, oh, mom, dad, if you'd only thought about it, you would have known right where I'd been. And if you would have just got me the cell phone I wanted, you wouldn't have to search so long. Jesus was patient. He was perfect. His parents weren't. You're not perfect, and your parents aren't. But be patient. In John chapter 7, Jesus' own brothers were taunting him about his public ministry. Oh, yeah, Jesus, why don't you just go on up to Jerusalem and do what you're supposed to do? Jesus was patient with his unbelieving brothers even at that time. Jesus was patient with his own disciples when they were jockeying for position. You know, when he had James and John come to him and say, Jesus, you know, we want to sit one on your right, one on your left when you come into your kingdom. Jesus didn't say, you knuckleheads don't even know what you're asking. He was patient, loving, truthful. He was patient with Peter when Peter dared to correct him for predicting his own death crucifixion in Matthew 16. Jesus was, was patient with the people of Israel. He was surrounded by people all the time that were just treating him like a sideshow. Show us a sign. Show us a sign, Jesus. And even in the midst of the crowds, Jesus didn't single those hard-hearted people out and tell them to go away. He fed them among the thousands. He taught them the loving truth of God with all the authority of the Godhead. People who misunderstood Him. People who didn't deserve His compassion. He gave it to them anyway. And think about the religious leaders. We see over and over again during the time of Jesus, even after the religious leaders were already plotting His destruction, Jesus accepted their invitation to go and eat in their home. And He loved them enough to continue to set the truth of eternity before them to try to get them to see where their hearts should be in relationship to God, to get them to repent of their hypocrisy and hard-heartedness, even though they were constantly questioning him, accusing him, and actively seeking his destruction. Jesus was patient. Brothers and sisters, consider how patient Jesus is with you, even right now. Consider where you are in your own spiritual life and the apathy that you are struggling with. How you turn to the things of the world rather than to the things of God on a, on a daily basis. Consider where you are in, in your hard-heartedness in some of your relationships with your, 
with your spouse, with your children, with your parents. Consider your struggle with your anger, your lust, your critical spirit, your discontentment, your disrespect. There are things you do every day that I do every day that God would be justified in striking us from the face of this earth if He were only a God of justice. And yet, how long-suffering and patient is He with me, with you? Remember the words of Romans 2.4, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ is kind with you, not so that you may linger in your sin, but so that you may repent of it. He is long-suffering with you, and He is at work even in you by His Spirit and His Word to get you to stop blaming other people for your sin and take responsibility of it yourself and repent. It is His kindness that relents to you. Will you look on Christ and behold the beauty of His patience and love and turn from that person, from that sin? That is the Lord being long-suffering with you. Run to Christ. Run to Christ and know of forgiveness and love that He has purchased for you with His own blood. Run to Christ who will continue to labor in you to form you after His very own heart. That then leads us to my second point, which is really the harder truth of this passage. We see the patience of the Father contrasted with the promise of destruction. The promise of destruction. What we see next in the parable is that there is a limit to the Lord's expression of patience. In the middle of verse 15, Jesus goes ahead and voices the question that everyone there was thinking. He says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now, if we stop right there, the answer is pretty clear. Members of the Sanhedrin that were listening to Jesus speak already know how they would have handled it. Again, most of them were very wealthy men, and likely several of them had tenant farmers who worked on land that they owned. They would have crushed those farmers with an iron fist right after they beat the first servant. And then they would have thrown them off the land and found other tenant farmers who were cooperative and loyal. Among all the other common lay people listening to Jesus, they would have expected the same. Those who were tenant farmers knew when the, when the landowner comes calling for his share at the time of harvest, you give it to him or you pay the consequence. So when Jesus answered his own question in verse 16, no one was surprised. Jesus said of the landowner, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Again, the landowner represents God, so Jesus is clearly making reference to the fact that God's judgment was going to come upon Israel for their sin of rejecting and murdering their beloved, his beloved son. And that happened within a generation as the Romans came and reconquered and obliterated Jerusalem in 70 A.D., what is interesting is if we go on in the parable, look at the last part of verse 16. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Now the question is, what were they saying, surely not, in response to? We would hope, 
We would hope that the people and the religious leaders would be so shocked and sorrowful over the idea of the tenant farmers killing the landowner's only beloved son that they would be saying, surely not, surely those tenants would not be so brazen and vicious as to kill their master's only beloved son. We would want to believe that, but that's not the case. Like I said in the previous sermon, the religious leaders were not dumb, they were just hard-hearted. They understood that Jesus was speaking about them. They knew that they were the wicked vine growers who refused to honor the landowner. They were the ones who were going to kill the beloved son. They were already plotting it. And so when they said, surely not, what they really meant was, surely God would never take the vineyard from the Jews and give it to other people. You see, even at this point, the Sanhedrin was more concerned about losing their power and Israel losing its place of national prominence than they were concerned about the Son of God being killed. And that is why God was going to destroy them. In their hard-heartedness, they were trampling underfoot the Son of God, and so the Lord's judgment was going to come upon them in great terror and fury. That is exactly the point that Jesus drove home with verses 17 and 18. Jesus focused his gaze upon his audience in a very serious and somber fashion. Look there at verse 17. And Jesus took them to Scripture. What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, where it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This psalm is also the exact same psalm that the multitudes were quoting the day before when he entered Jerusalem. Verse 26 of that same psalm says, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what is the significance of a cornerstone? Well, the cornerstone is the stone from which everything else is set. The larger the building, the larger the cornerstone. In some ancient structures, you can find cornerstones that are over 30 feet long and several feet thick. And a cornerstone had to be perfect because it was the basis for squaring the floor, the walls, and even the roof line. And so builders would often quarry and compare several different stones to find the one that was most perfectly square for their cornerstone. And if it didn't meet the exacting standards, they'd throw it out. What's even more interesting here, though, is that Jesus is tacitly making reference to an incident that happened during the building of Solomon's first temple. You see, at the end of 1 Kings chapter 5, we see that Solomon drafted stone cutters to serve at a quarry up in the mountain, cutting stones for the temple. Once they were chiseled to the right shape, they were transferred to Jerusalem to be set into place. And so historians tell us that one of the large stones that was chiseled out and brought to Jerusalem, one of those stones seemed to be the wrong size when it arrived at the temple site in Jerusalem. And so the workmen set it aside. This was the stone that the builders rejected. But to everyone's surprise, that stone later turned out to be the exact shape and size to serve as the cornerstone or the capstone that squared the temple. This story, back in Israel's history, might even be what the psalmist was thinking of when he was inspired to write Psalm 118. 
And so Jesus, once again, is interpreting Psalm 118 as a prophetic psalm, and he's applying it to himself. He's once again laying claim to the title of the Messiah, as well as laying claim to his divinity as God's only begotten son. Just as the landowner's only son was murdered, and just as the stone was rejected, he too would be reviled and crucified by these evil men. But God, but God would not be thwarted by the evil of men. Even though the stone was rejected, God would bring it back and make it the chief cornerstone. Just as the cornerstone was the foundation and standard for all the rest of the structure, so Christ would be elevated as the sure foundation and perfect standard of God's righteous kingdom. His rejection and death at the hands of men would result in his resurrection and exaltation at the hands of God. Even more. Because of their rejection of the Messiah, the kingdom of God would be taken from Israel. And again, this just fulfills what Jesus had said all along. In John 1, verse 11, it says, Jesus had come to his own, but his own did not receive him. Sadly, that is the Jews. And therefore, the vineyard would be given to another. The kingdom of God would be given to a people producing the fruit of it. The glorious gospel would go forth even to the Gentiles, and the kingdom would not be a Jewish kingdom. It would be a kingdom composed of all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, brothers and sisters, Jesus is foretelling here exactly what we experience 2,000 years later. We, who are not of Jewish ancestry and lineage, are nonetheless part of the people of God. We are Israel in the spiritual sense. This, this is spoken of very definitively in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is who we are, all of us who believe. Our lives are built on the cornerstone that is Christ. If we go back to our text in Luke chapter 20 and look at verse 18, we see that Jesus continues to use the metaphor of a cornerstone. In verse 18, he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. I want you to think about that for a minute. Think about the cornerstone I described just a few minutes ago. A cornerstone solid rock that is 30 feet long and several feet thick and several feet wide. You know, if a person were to fall on a stone like that, they would get pretty banged up. I mean, something that big doesn't give way. The human body gives way. A person who falls on the stone might break some bones, might even crack their head. But if this stone fell on someone, it would crush them to bits. Jesus is that cornerstone. 
And what Jesus means here is, you know what? There are going to be many in this life who stumble over this stone. We see our world stumble over Jesus all the time. Wait, how can you tell me that, that of all the world's religions, Jesus is the only Savior? I mean, that, that doesn't even make sense, humanly speaking. They stumble. Well, what do you mean we have a, a loving God who's going to send people to hell one day? That's not very loving. And they stumble. Well, what do you mean you, you have a God that, that tells people who they can love or not love or what gender they can be? That's crazy. That cuts across my human experience. And they stumble. These are the ones who reject the truth of the gospel. These are the ones who worship the creature rather than the creator. And as a result, they will be broken to pieces. They will be handed over to the wreckage of their sin, as it says in Romans 1. They will build their lives on foundations of sand, and they will be overcome by the storms of life. And when they are encompassed by trials, they will have no anchor, only vain hope. Because they have stumbled over the Son of God. But you know what? Nothing, that's nothing compared to the end. Because on the final day of judgment, Christ will fall on them and they will be utterly crushed. Do you know what the Greek word for crushed here means in this text? In Luke chapter 20, verse 18, it literally means to be ground into a fine powdery dust. And if I could give us a picture of just the horror of that. I want us to think back to 9-11 and what happened now over 20 years ago. Two planes struck two skyscrapers in New York City. And the fuel in those planes caused those buildings to begin to burn. And the structural integrity of those buildings was compromised and they came crashing down. And you probably, if you were alive at that time, you probably remember all the news reports how all over that area of Manhattan for blocks and blocks and blocks, everything was covered with this thick dust. And you know what? They did some tests on that dust. And they found that that dust wasn't just concrete dust. But the massive weight of that steel and that concrete that came crushing down it turned wooden furniture. It turned electrical wiring. It turned plastic computers and screens. It turned human bodies into dust in an instant. That dust contained organic human material. Lives that went from existing to being dust in a matter of seconds. That is the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ pictured here. When He falls on you, you will be crushed. If you will have Jesus as your deliverer, He will forgive you. Everything you've done wrong, everything you think that makes you unworthy, every barrier that you have, 
If you turn and believe in Jesus, you will be forgiven. You will be made whole by the very one who created you for his glory. His mercy is held out to you even now. Just as Jesus held himself out before the men who were going to murder him just a few days later, Jesus holds himself before every sinner now, offering life and hope and glory to any who will turn from their sin and believe in him, trust in him for salvation. But make no mistake, if you will not have Jesus as your deliverer, he will be your destroyer. Daniel even prophesied this. In Daniel chapter 2, remember Daniel had a dream, a vision, and this great statue that was set up by Nebuchadnezzar, composed of different materials. And then Daniel said in Daniel chapter 2, beginning of verse 34, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the shaft of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That stone, that mountain, is Christ. Christ is the cornerstone the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. I beg of you, all of you within the sound of my voice, if you have not trusted in Him, trust Him now. Even now, the Spirit and the Word are at work, convicting, drawing. Turn from your sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Know His tender mercies. Know the hope and the wholeness that He alone gives Some of you in this room are young and you're thinking to yourself, I've got my whole life to live that way. I've got all this ahead of me. There's time for all that later. No, there's not. You are not promised tomorrow. You know, just a week ago, my family, three of my family members were in a car crash. Car crash that could have taken all three of their lives. I'm thankful it didn't happen. They walked away. But moments like that make you realize how quick it can all be gone. Turn from your sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You think you have time, but you don't. It's a lie. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and know His tender mercies. If not, if not, you will be decimated when He comes again. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you so grateful that you are patient, Father, that you are long-suffering, that even today again, Lord, you have spoken, even today again, you have beckoned to the hearts who need to hear, even today, Lord, you have reminded your children not only of how loving and compassionate and long-suffering you are with us, but you have reminded even the most hardened heart among us how long-suffering you are. Oh, Father God, may we all hear that truth of your kindness and repent. 
May we as your children repent of our, our pride, our lust, our apathy, our anger, our own stubbornness. Help us to be children, Father God, that do not presume upon your patience, but who see it, Father God, as a warm embrace of forgiveness and restoration. And Father, by all means, please, save some in our midst. Save our young people who mistakenly think that they will get to this later. Save the hard-hearted among us, Lord, who have been so hardened by the deceitfulness of sin in this world. Save those, Lord, who feel unworthy. The fact of the matter is we are all unworthy. Only Christ is worthy. May they, Lord, trust in Him. Be glorified, Father God, this day in our restoration, in our salvation. And, O God, with trembling hearts, we likewise pray that you be glorified in your day of judgment. In the precious name of Christ, we pray. Amen.